Hey, so this episode of Radio Free Demos is a little bit unusual in that we are referencing the new lore book, Sound and Silence, quite extensively. The topic that kind of informs both this episode and the next episode is, is going to be the strange and alien. And a lot of the new material, well, talks about the soul universe in great detail, and some of it is for Game Master's eyes only. So be aware, this episode and the next one will have a number of spoilers. Destroying the entire Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixundraconis fan podcast broadcasting for as long as possible from ASAF Hall at Lake Voltaire on Demos. While the Radio Free Demos broadcasting schedule is erratic, at best, recent changes to Demos's orbital spin have made standardizing our release schedule impossible. If we were sticking to Demos's day-night cycle like we used to, we'd have to start removing episodes. We really don't want to do that. Hmm. Welcome to Demos. Thank you and good night. This is episode 15, 16, 13, 12. This episode is Host Chatter. With me this week, as always, are Ashtar and Wines, and a special guest host, Sparky Dingo, a visiting student of cryptozoology. Oh, and I'm Corvo. So this week, we'll spend a few moments getting to know the hosts, talk about what's new in HSD and the Radio Free Demos website, touch on some tangentially relevant material from the host Sunday campaigns, and then leave off with what we think is awesome this week. But right now, I'd like to celebrate the St. Halloween holiday appropriately here at ASAF Hall as we all sit around waiting for the one child on Deimos to come by, dressed up like he always does as St. Halloween, with his jolly pumpkin head and all that, and give him candy facsimiles of the heads of our departed loved ones to take with him to the Halloween workshop. And if we've been good boys and girls this year, they'll come back next year as candy clones. You know, it just seems like Halloween isn't as fun as it was when I was a kid. Hmm. Yeah, but we had an atmosphere when I was a kid, so that, that, that tended to help a little bit. We'll never forget. Wave goodbye to the atmosphere day. I know. It was it was lovely. The blue and the black. The slowly fading cheers. So let's get to know our hosts. In keeping with this week's topic, the strange and alien, I've got a question for our hosts. What is the strangest thing you've seen this week? And if you'd say your name first, then we can actually connect names to voices. Uh, I'm Wines. And I, this week I've heard of female hyenas say that they've, they've actually encountered a male hyena whose opinion is worth listening to, but no. has not been corroborated. Yeah, no, I think not. This is Ashtar, and the strangest thing I saw this weekend is when Corbo left his search history up. <laughs> <laughs> this is Spark Ningo. The strangest thing I've seen was I was attacked by a crab spider. Like a big one or a small one or a big one, one of those like human sized ones. <laughs> Luckily not. Okay. I wouldn't be here if that was mm. the case. <laughs> good, good. Should really keep lots of butter around just in case that happens. And do you remember last week when someone got a strike at the bowling alley and the moon kind of abruptly shifted to the right? I was at Starbucks and the barista was putting on some eyeliner right about then. And the results were just dramatic. Hmm. So that was my encounter. Are we talking half dramatic or full face dramatic? A Romulan dramatic. Mm. Just a single Romulan, though, not not both, because <laughs> just a momentary thing. Her, her eyebrow was introduced into the scientific record. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for Sparky. 
what does it mean to study cryptozoology? Do you want me to give a brief why, what cryptozoology is or why you choose to go into it? Uh, whatever strikes your fancy. <laughs> I'm going to take a yes for 600, Alex. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Tell them what they won. Um, basically, cryptozoology is the study of mythical creatures, anything that may or may not exist. I, most of my studies go into demonology, though, and occult. So, Fun. Yeah. I study dark history and um, pentagrams and all kinds of fun demonic stuff. I should have brought you in when we were talking about White Wolf last time. Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh, no problem. Thank you. How can anything that big hide for so long a time? Yeah. I wonder what their next move will be. So, I guess now we can talk a little bit about what's new in the HSD universe. And frankly, I'm getting a little tired of saying that Sound and Silence has been completed and the Kickstarter was successful. These are both true things. And this entire episode and the next one will have probably some spoilers from that book. So, consider skipping ahead two weeks. If you care. <laughs> if you care. But there is new information from Exodraconis. Specifically, they're doing an update to the official HSD webpage. I know this is sort of a woo sort of thing, but it's kind of neat. The page has been static for about two years now. The new one is a little more modern looking. But there's uh, some new information, some new ideas, and I think one new opportunity. First off, the forums went down like a year ago. I think they stopped supporting them and there wasn't a lot of interest in them, mostly because the Discord chat has been pretty effective. So the uh, new site has some notes saying that these might go live again. There's the kind of expected links to uh, books, novels, clothing, minis, that sort of thing. The click here to buy a link to videos. Not super surprising. Prominent references to Ixandracona's second ad. And this is a bit hidden, but under the community link, there's a space talking about sharing and possibly selling community-made contracts. So that's a new opportunity for fan writers. Right now, it only says contract. It doesn't say deludes them with tons of material about new corporations, uh, elegant descriptions of hairless dogs as a playable race. Fenicorp. Fenicorp. Uh, Fenicorp's been done, sir. Oh, darn it. Sorry. But uh, I think that's really going to be exciting to have some fan-made content. Neat. One thing I'd like to see, which is, I think, somewhat lacking, is the community web content links, though I will note that's somewhat self-serving. And kind of a what's the game about link isn't there yet, which is, I think that's going to be a necessary thing, kind of explain the content for non-readers, non-players. But you can check it out. The web link is, you know, I don't know what it is, but it's going to be the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> The web link is conveniently located right below this video. We're on camera now? <laughs> oh, crap. I should have combed my one hair. <laughs> it has taken you centuries to even grasp what we developed eons of your years ago. So far as what's new from Radio Free Demos goes, this marks the third month of no real activity in terms of web development on our end. But we have started setting up a side page specifically devoted to fan-driven content and things like that. Right now, all there is is the basic WordPress template, but you can check that out if you really feel so inclined at codex.radiofreedamos.com.
Very soon, though, there will be author logins, so you can upload your own content and edit it and play in that sandbox all you'd like. And I'm going to be excited to see this one up and running. This is the most fantastic story I've ever heard. And every word of it's true, too. So far as the table's Sunday game goes, we are still on a short hiatus from Ixun Draconis and that world as Ashtar recharges his creative batteries, and I have been running Werewolf the Apocalypse during the interim. I don't really feel like we need to go on a deep dive into what happened during the game. Uh, the long and the short of it is the PCs are on a spirit quest to make a special pointy weapon for the Theurge, and were distracted and visited a hive of black spiral dancers instead. That's pretty much the plot of the last game. Wherein the PCs are confused and ineffectual in a surprisingly large number of ways. So rather than getting deep in the weeds there, I'd like to talk about maintaining horror in your tabletop game. Both White Wolf and to a greater or lesser degree Ixun Draconis have horror is as a core feature. And it's tricky to uh, run that kind of game and to maintain a mood. I think we find that out at our table quite a lot because we have such a range of player types. Just as a way to unpack the concept, we can look at Stephen King's definitions of horror, which as kind of a writerly approach, I think feeds well into RPGs. He breaks horror down into three kind of broad categories, keywords. The lowest and easiest one is the gross out, and that's the splatter of wet against your face, blood on the walls, the horrible hand grabbing your arm, a little of the jump scare. Ah. <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> you actually got me on that one, Ashtar. Thank you. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Something of the jump scare, more of the green slimes pattering on the wall. This is the very base biological horror that kind of gets you gets you running. His second category of horror, which I think is one of the easiest ones to implement in a tabletop game, is... Well, he calls it the horror, and that is the distress and and fear and scare factor of actually facing the strange and alien monster. So this is the PC's encounter a werewolf after it changes for the first time. This is seeing the dead body. This is facing the zombie and realizing it looks like your loved one, that sort of thing. It's not, again, a subtle horror. The shock of realization? In many ways, yeah, it's it's the confronting the thing. Okay. Um, it's it's a combination of like visceral elements and a little revulsion, and your brain trying to adjust and accommodate uh, the shock of the alien, okay. that sort of thing. The slow realization that the crew that you've been talking to for the past thirty minutes or so is actually hundreds of years dead, and an AI is simply stitching together the video feed to make them work. I think the keyword "slow realization" feeds into Stephen's. Uh, Mr. King, you know, I'm on a first name basis with him, uh, feeds into his third category, which is terror. And that is the kind of buildup of dread that you're facing the unknown. So I think that's kind of the mood music building up slowly. The knowledge that not only is your family gone, but you've been interacting with them for the last three weeks. And now you're starting to put the pieces together. And of the three, that's the hardest to maintain in writing, he says. And I think certainly the hardest to maintain in a tabletop role playing game. That's both the hardest to maintain. It's also the easiest for a PC to break with jokes or playing around at the table. Yeah. Right. Which, unfortunately, I think a very natural response to horror and processing fear is to start making jokes and quips as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. So how can we better maintain that, that mood? It's, it's delicate. It breaks easily. 
I also wanted to comment that that mood is kind of the overall mood of a David Lynch film. Oh, the entire film. Like yes, the entire film. Of, 90 minutes of dread. It's just terror hanging over your head. You're not sure why, but you know something bad is going to happen at some point. It never does because that, that we you'd have release. He doesn't right. give you that. No, you're just living the 37 hertz drone continually, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. On the note of background drones, I think that doing whatever you can to, to take the game table out of its normal space is going to be really helpful. Uh, mood music is is good because it says, hey, this is a special time. Uh, if you happen to be blessed with the ability to throw around huge amounts of weird lighting effects, another <laughs> good choice. Uh, I, I'm not sure that actually made it creepier, but I do remember yeah, what one sequence taking place in the negative material plane where I turned out all the lights and turned on the UV lights I'd hidden around the room <laughs> and made people play by that. It was probably more annoying than anything else, but I thought it was fun. Well, I don't think it made it scarier or creepier, but it made it other, and that's important. Yeah. Uh, even props here are a good thing. And none of these, all of these might be just kind of silly on the surface, and maybe they don't really totally work, but anything you can do to say this is a special place, this is not your standard game table, this is not the living room, please ignore the Cheetos. Oh, God, I referenced that sketch. Yeah. Well, you can put a dead body in a corner. Should you have one lying around? Sure, sure. I'm a little concerned now. We are falling into <laughs> Stephen King's third category at yeah. this point. One of the basic frameworks of like setting up a magical ritual is you have to identify the space as being outside of time and space as a different place for different experiences. And that really works on activating like your inner child and making people more in the moment, even if it's cornball. That's also pretty critically important from the GM side to try and keep that mood. The timing and the pace is a very strong force to kind of keep that building tension. You can't just have a, a theme park scenario at the time where you're just kind of leading the PCs along. There's not enough engagement to maintain that sort of tension and kind of almost introverted, what are we doing next and what's going on? But at the same time, you can't just be totally hands off and let the PCs find their own way because the PCs will not find their own way into terror. They'll find their way out of that situation. Yeah, it seems like there are scenes where letting PCs kind of converse back and forth are worthwhile. Was that English? I think that was English. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that a horror moment is one of them because the longer you leave them kind of to their own devices, the more likely they are to go off off rail in some silly way. And again, just break mood. Well, and it's it's natural to try and break that mood. That is a somewhat uncomfortable mood. Mm-hmm. And starting to crack jokes or get off track is is very natural. It's yeah. what you would expect. So the GM has to be ready to slowly kind of drip feed just a little bit more, drip feed just a little bit more, keep their keep their attention, keep them somewhat focused without ever quite knowing that the GM is just going to give him the next step because a little bit of that uncertainty also fuels that mood. Yeah. If you want to give the party some time to sit down and relax, do it after the scare. Um, Let them have the period of unwinding time, which is part of the kind of the natural rhythm of horror. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the, if you said it, you said it rule in this context? It's, that's one of the rules that is good to have in mind, but is too table dependent to really say, it applies often. For some tables, that's a very good rule. It's a rule that they can keep up all the time. And you'll often see this on kind of some of the display tables or the streamed games, that type of thing. What you say is what happens. And partially that's time restraint. Uh, clever editing. <laughs> sometimes you're working with newer players or younger players that don't necessarily have 
a lot of experience or good control over what they're saying and what they actually want to be doing. Discipline. There you go. And that rule is useful, but it's it can't be enforced fully. It's it's kind of a training tool. Yeah, I was going to say a training wheel sort of thing. So I like it, but I personally find that it kind of gets in the way of the game more often than not when it's when it's strictly enforced. Mm. Yeah, being able to narrate your scenes can be really helpful to add tension as well for PCs and GMs. What about playing without character sheets? I've been kind of toying with that as an idea for... I've been toying with that as an idea for a more immersive scene sometime, but maybe that's my LARP sickness talking. Yeah, it's... Sometimes I see players get confused and they, they... They get confused and they pull out their character sheet and look at it as if the answer of what they should say or do is contained on it. <laughs> and if they do that the odds that they're going to come up with something which is good are very, very low. They're probably going to say, oh, can I use this spell? Can I use this ability here? And the answer is no, you should be acting here. So I, I like it a lot as, as an idea. I mean, my background is in miniature gaming. I appreciate the, the use and importance of a, a table and fixed numbers and stuff like that. But some of my fondest memories are of playing, and this, this is not when I was young, it's more recently of playing like D and D and not having a map. I, th I think my imagination was a lot more vivid with that. So I think in a way I kind of imagine the perfect thing is for the GM to have to deal with the stupid map and all the metrics and the players to not be troubled by that, but only be, to be given a description of things. But that's a heck of a lot of work for the GM. Yeah. For like a single session, it's achievable, but as a lifestyle. Yeah. That's just mean. For a single session, for a single scene even, I think that does have value. But the GM would want to set that up to kind of limit the possibilities in a certain sense. You don't want your characters to think that they can just use anything on their sheet because then you would have to reference everything on the sheet. If you, if you just subtly guide that scene to be either an all-combat scene or a no-combat scene or a almost a no talking scene and just only on thief skills, that type of thing. You, you lower the set of abilities that the players are having to draw from. Then that really lifts the weight of running that type of thing on the GM. Yeah, if one of your characters gets a bright idea and wants to use their brawl to do something outside of the box, you don't stop them. You, you just try and, I guess, kind of... Yes, and. Yeah. Well, I've played two RPGs before and... um the uh, GM always loved it when we had our character sheets already made up. I uh, actually was GM for one, and it was actually a lot easier and more fun to not have a character sheet at all, just kind of play by ear. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have a, a good idea in your head, that, that's kind of more important than a character sheet, because I know like some of our players will even have, and, and I myself will sometimes, I have a character written up, but just I don't really have it in my head. It just doesn't really quite make sense to me. Mm-hmm or one of our players, comes up, with, comes up with a neat character who just has a hard time internalizing it and just frequently has to say, I, I just don't know what my character would do here. And then that's, that's tough. But when you do know, that feels really good. I feel like I might be getting kind of off the <laughs> topic, but... <laughs> you can al almost rephrase this as, was it appropriate to bring other game styles into your game? If you're playing a very structured game like Dungeons & Dragons or maybe to a lesser extent, something like HSD, but you have a particular scene that you decide we're going to have a fate night instead, then that, that brings the structure of a completely different rule set and a rules light environment into maybe a scene or half a night. 
to let everyone kind of step back from their rules heavy and number crunching, dice crunching roles to uh, be a little bit more free with that that particular whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, and Sparky, you were saying that you had a pretty good experience with a, a reasonably young game uh, running without character sheet. I feel like the the ability to say, hey, let's put the dice away for a while is a fairly like advanced concept because you have to have a decent level of trust between the storyteller storyteller <laughs> and uh, the players. Mm-hmm. Scary. I don't know. And I, I know that sometimes, especially with the crunchier games, um, if you decide I want to step back and I want to make this more abstract, if the players don't understand what that's what you're doing, or even if they do understand, it's very hard. It's like, but it says on my character sheet, I can do this. So why can't I do it right now? Uh, it's really hard to let go of that. I, mean, I understand that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's always this contract between the player and the game master and the rule book as to what you can and can't do. And if you're violating that by saying you can't even roll or your stats don't mean anything right now or let's put the sheet away, that's pretty terrifying. On the other hand, in horror, you frequently do, as the the writer of the scene, know the answers, which is the PCs are going to lose one person. The PCs are going to have to be scared. The PCs are facing Nyarlathotep and have no hope. These are kind of set answers. The dice are almost an inconvenience at that point. But again, that's a lot of trust. Yes, but how does my dual wield affect this? <laughs> <laughs> Two Vorish signs at once. Yes. <laughs> so do you think World of Darkness is overarching just dark mythology falls under Stephen King's three levels of horror? Well, let's take that apart. <laughs> I first, first off, if you're talking about the metaplot itself, mm-hmm. um, by nature, it's a slow moving and cumbersome beast that can very rarely to which you can very, very rarely apply a jump scare. The nature of it is, I mean, you're going to be dealing with it as it unfolds one page at a time. So in a sense, there are moments of horror in it. But if you're looking at a plot that moves along a scale of months of game time, then I think you're mostly dealing with the dread sense of the world is changing around me and it's going to a place that I don't understand. Or if you're in a LARP and everybody has already read the rule book twice, uh, they are worried about what the PC, what the storyteller is going to throw at them. And that's also its own sort of <laughs> sort of <laughs> crunchy munchkin dread. I think that White Wolf really attempts to invoke dread, invoke the sense of the alien of this inevitable sense of loss. And that's part of their meta plot. It's this downward spiral down the toilet, which a lot of my games end up spiraling down the horror toilet as well. <laughs> so I have to say they aim for dread, but that's only as good as your game master in your table. Like, like we've talked about, you can't implement horror at a table that wants to make jokes all the time. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. Unless, and then, then there's no game. <laughs> well, well, unless you're playing Wraith, in which case, <laughs> I guess when we were talking earlier, I was mentioning that the HSD just throws in a whole bunch of sci-fi, sci-fi horror tropes just all over the place. And we were observing that most of them, in fact, basically all of them have not come up in our campaign, but they're there. The, the, The players who have read the books know there's all this stuff. It could be there or something else. So, 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 in, in a kind of meta way, the players have to always doubt what might happen. Um, I mean, if, if a story was set in a modern day, if you're playing a double set, 007 campaign, then the players are not worried about summoning up things from beyond or spirits and stuff like that. Whereas in HSD, 
Yeah, you don't know. I mean, the, the plot might be about, like, making money off of corporations, but something might jump out of someone's head at any, any point. So I think that's in the back of the players' heads. So that might make them more receptive to being surprised because they kind of expect it. So far, most of the PCs are in the same position as most of the inhabitants of Soul System and that, yeah, these things exist. They've seen them on the tubes. That They're out there somewhere, but they've never seen one. They've yeah. never met anyone that's dealt with it before. No, most yeah, they're the, just out on the on the border somewhere. Yeah, we don't really have horror trope-prone PCs at this table. And some of that's definite, deli- definitely deliberate. It's not that these are concepts that are just being left out of the game, but there is a certain amount of character building and character kind of connection that you want to get before you really start making things weird. You, you have to set the normal normalcy bar before the weird stuff actually seems weird instead right. of, you know, if you if you lead with creatures from the great beyond, then everyone's going, OK, this is a game about creatures from the great beyond. Right. I'm, I'm down with that. Let's get our dimensional hopping, magic tossing galactic sorcerers going. Space Ghostbusters. Exactly. But you did drop us rather immediately into horror. I think we went there day two, if I'm not mistaken. That's about right. I was mentioning to my new dental hygienist, the uh, the special antibacterial floss made with hyena spit in it. <laughs> I'm not sure she believed me, but it, it does exist. No, it's sort of sort of a body horror category thing there. Yeah, just a little bit. OK, so you led into that with day the, two that you dropped us into horror day two. And that's true. That was kind of the opening campaign, the opening salvo to baseline some of the campaign, get the characters all working together. Major NPC. Potentially major NPC. And I've touched on this before. This is something that we've talked about previously, but very short. The scenario was coming across an ancient destroyed battleship kind of off the major lanes and slowly working through on the salvage and finding out that the ship is not completely dead yet. Uh, There's an AI that still has some semblance of awareness and control. And as the PCs started to put things back together, both figuratively and literally, they start connecting up certain powers, connections, and feeding the AI who comes across as, or who reveals herself eventually to be rather mad at this point, way off the rails and quite suicidal and very willing to take the characters along with her uh, to follow the last commands and all that. So in part, that was a sociopathic, almost spectral intelligence. The NPC uh, computer was kind of ghost of the past, echoing the murders or last moments of the crew, that sort of thing, which is good, solid science fiction horror. You also planted us pretty firmly in the horror trope of the bad place, which is the root of the haunted house type thing, where the area itself is an antagonist. Uh, for more on that, see Ken Heights' wonderful books, Nightmares of Mine and GURPS Horror. The first is a little bit more condensed than the second. But that's a, a classic technique for establishing a strange and alien hostile place where just about everything is going to be turned against you on some level. It was a haunted house scenario. Mm-hmm. With lasers. Somewhat, somewhat more, more ludicrously, I'm just kind of realizing that in, in the furry context, that when you come across an NPC, and that NPC is the same species as your GM's preferred species, <laughs> you know, this is not an encounter you can walk past. You must deal with it. Because 
obviously a lot of love and attention has gone into it if the AI is also a fox. <laughs> Guilty as charged. But I think uh, part of the part of the atmosphere that really made it just a little bit better was that the AI, first off, did not really reveal herself. She did speak through the dead crew. Mm-hmm. So you had the first initial reveal of that the NPCs that you thought you were dealing with don't actually exist sooner or later. And there was a little bit of a mastermind behind, behind that that slowly became a reveal. I think it also helped that the AI was not quite sane or single-minded. You couldn't quite predict what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. She was very friendly at the same time as cheerfully sociopathic, quite happy to attempt to provide refreshments and welcome you onto the ship and casually discuss the upcoming destruction of herself and everything aboard her. When I couldn't tell if we were dealing with a plot that was ASR driven or actually supernatural, it was kind of hazy as to what place we were actually in. Yeah, that one, that one was not as intentional. It was presented as an ASR battleship, but being in HSD and being in the first campaign in HSD, not really knowing what kind of style I'd be throwing out. um, I do understand where that was coming from. There's plenty of supernatural. There's plenty of interdimensional. There's plenty of other out there that could be creating that type of mystery to be revealed to something almost mundane as a crazy AI. Well, that all (laughs) just a giant robot that wants to kill us all. Right. One a week. Well, um, just real quick, it kind of sounds like you're going with a, uh, the AI was trying to get the new players to help it destroy itself. Mm -hmm. The overarching plot was the last orders of the AI was more or less to destroy herself and erase any um, proof that the mission that the, call it the Black Ops test Mm -hmm. AI and warship ever existed. Her test mission failed. ASR wouldn't want anything hanging out to have proof of what they were attempting. But the catastrophe that crippled the ship hundreds of odd years ago prevented her from ever carrying out those orders. And finally, energy just ran too low. So when the PCs came around and started reconnecting bits of the ship and connecting the AI brain to the energy core and then connecting to the weapons control and slowly starting to bring things back online. She's been around and helpless for a hundred years, but now she suddenly starts having control again and those orders are still fully enforced. And the only person that could revoke those orders was a skeleton in the captain's chair. So it kind of becomes a part of the ship, part of the crew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. We still aren't quite sure what she's going to do to us. Right. They actually recovered the last backup that was taken. So Hundreds of years in the past, but they are so happily running around with that AI running their ship. Actually, I think I had a moment of legitimate level one terror, the horrible jump scare when you said, yes, it's copying itself to your hard drives now. <laughs> ah, no, I wasn't ready for that. This is too much commitment. Your, your captain's an excellent judge of character. Just ask her. I, I just have in my head, you know, oh, look, someone recharged the Kevorkian batteries. <laughs> description i don't think i'd want to see it either so before we close out this episode i'd like to take a moment to ask the hosts what they think is awesome this week that is what news articles or clippings or products or movies or video games tangentially related to the world of furry sci-fi science and 
etc., uh, you've stumbled across. I, I guess I'll start this one out. A couple of months ago, Ars Technica, which I can quote too, <laughs> had a fun article about neural networks and artificial creativity called An AI Invented a Bunch of New Paint Colors That Are Hilariously Wrong. I will definitely link to this in the show notes. But this one researcher in particular has made a loving hobby of patching in a fairly creative neural network program into a bunch of data and then spewing out the comedic results. Her, her name is uh, Janelle Shane and her Tumblr is really worth reading, uh, if nothing else, for these surreal recipes there. So in this one, she turned it to designing new color names and they were fantastic. Uh, Ronching Blue, Bunlo, uh, Snowbonk, Stummy Beige, <laughs> Burble Simp, Turdly, Stoomy Brown and Stanky Bean were <laughs> among my favorites. Isn't Snowbonk like a, a children's book from, by Neil Stevenson? I think it should be. <laughs> so through a wandering trail, I'm going to return this to Furry. She's done a lot of other work, too. And forgive me if I just list. You know, I like my lists. Uh, she's done slash dot, slash dot article headlines, algorithm names, hipster beer names, Harry Potter spells. And I'm going to take a moment to appreciate the Herring Charm, Melville de Blanche Chain's Great Flare, Bubber Oberdu, Curse of the Saris, and of course the Spell Spell Spell. Uh, she's turned into pickup lines, Dungeons and Dragons spells, which shall include Chorus of the Dave, Ward of Snade the Pood Beast, <laughs> Forceful Force, I love those, and weird proverbs, including Death when it comes will have no sheep. <laughs> I, I think that sounds very real. Yeah. So in um, furry news column Flayra, we learned that she and Green Reaper had gotten together in collaboration. Collaboration? <laughs> collaboration. Collaboration. Also created by the AI. <laughs> uh, Janelle Shane and Green Reaper collaborated to get a list of 1,000, one, no, 11,000 furry names put into her AIs, and then she told it to go and create new furry names Excellent. via artificial intelligence. Uh, it really liked the word shadow. It really liked the word shadow an awful lot. As do furries. As do furries, yeah. So if you go to the Flayra article, it lists kind of the best ofs of a number of different iterations, including like one with the creativity turned all the way up and one with the uh, like experience, the number of repetitions, I guess, iterations turned all the way up, some early stuff. And then if you scroll down to the comments, they've listed like the entire data set that she coughed up with this. Hmm. But I'm going to uh, go through the best of names just a bit. Uh, Red Husky, Shadow Fox, which just is too, too real. If you don't know two, you're not a furry. I know. Wrong's Middle, Furry Wolf Candy. <laughs> That's a good one. Chewings, Rock Pup, Smick the Blue Fox. And I thought I invented the word Smick, but apparently it's... No. No? AI said it first. And hold it. Coontain. <laughs> hey, I know him. <laughs> that sounds like an energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of illegal. So anyway, check out that article. Link in the show notes, etc. Well, um, I don't know if this goes along with it, but there's a, a new kind of furry comic book coming out. Well, I think its first issue actually did come out. Angelica? That's Angelic. my... Angelic. Hmm. That's my sister. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, same as HSD, it's a kind of dystopian future um, with flying dolphins and flying monkeys being the main head animals of the... Uh, I don't know, I haven't read it much of it, but <laughs> basically, if you want good and bad... Monkey's good, 
Dolphins bad. Well, yeah. So is that uh, in stores right now or something you pick up at cons? Um, yes, you can actually pick it up right now um, at comic shops. The first issue should have come out a week ago. <laughs> Neat. Dolphins bad. Lions worth. That's true, too. <laughs> if you like dolphins and jetpacks, they're... Oh, they don't have wings. No, the monkeys have wings. Oh, well, that logically follows. Sure. I like dolphins and jetpacks. That's kind of awesome. They burn their dorsal fins off, though. <laughs> Dolphins have dorsal fins? Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, I've been reading a, a sci-fi book uh, called The Einstein Bridge. And just the one thing that kind of jumping out at me is it's set at the Texas's superconducting super collider. Oh. And it's kind of sad because it's, it's a book set at a giant scientific apparatus, which was never actually completed. So... It's interesting to see when when sci-fi authors just get it flat out wrong. Ellen Musk has been quiet this week, so I don't... He has been lame. So uh, I had to scrounge a little bit further for interesting headlines, but also in ours, we had a quick discussion over Corpse Warehouses of Horror, which is probably a little bit sad, but yeah, fairly relevant to the season. Oh, yeah. And a general have scientific look at the potential for zombies and what they would look like. And science has generally concluded that if we see zombies, they're probably going to be the fast, screamy zombies and not the slow, shambling type. Your oh. mileage may vary, but, you know. This is Corpse, Corpse, C-O-R-P-S-E, Warehouses of Horror. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a traditional shopping mall zombie. Well, there were two different articles. Oh. But we can get you both those links. Thank you. Oh, and related to foxes, this came up when I was talking to Overflow at lunch. I, I don't know why, but I, I brought up the the researcher in Africa that had taken down a hyena with a tranquilizer rifle to do whatever biologists do, and it stopped breathing. And she heroically gave it mouth-to-mouth, successfully bringing it back, reporting that the experience was not nice. <laughs> I assume she must have been British. <laughs> but that, that led me to wonder... You know, would it be possible to give a fennec fox mouth to mouth without making it pop? (laughs) (laughs) I've given an iguana mouth to mouth, so. Okay, that's up there. Wow. Oh, that's an image. Or iguana. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go into reptile biology. No, no attention. (laughs) Well, on that note, I think we should all get ready to put on our ceremonial sheets with holes poked in the eyes and get ready for St. Halloween's arrival. So until then, everybody, happy tricking and treating and catch the outro line. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So far at... Not English. Nice Welsh, sir. <laughs> Long roll the dice. I went Scottish there for a second. <laughs> I'm not good with my British accents. <laughs>